Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshayem at Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan Eig about this week's Torah portion of Vayichi, The Power of Myths. The question that I think about this time of year is how we like to puncture myths. You're not going to tell me about Santa Claus here, are you? Well, that, I was, I was going to go there, and, I, <laughs> and now I'm thinking better of it. But that's the phrase that we use. You puncture myth. You, oh, don't tell me there's no Santa Claus. Or we watch these kind of made-for-TV movies where someone kind of tells a child and then watch the child kind of you know, be shocked by that. What do you think that says about us, that we struggle with this idea so much? Well, we like easy stories. And I deal with this in my work all the time, because in almost every book I've written, I've had to puncture some familiar myth. Um, you know, Muhammad Ali did not throw his gold medal in the Ohio River to protest segregation in Louisville, things like that. And um, and it's always unpopular. People are very upset when you tell them that this foundational story that they've grown up hearing all their lives never happened. It's, you know, there's a part of us that clings to these things because they offer easy explanations. They offer us vivid lessons and they don't require any nuance or real critical thinking. But I, I think it's probably a little more than that because it also tells us not only the story we want to hear, but it also tells us something about ourselves, what we attach ourselves to. So the Muhammad Ali that I love is the guy who stands up in protest and throws his gold medal into the Ohio River because he, st- he stood up for what was important. And I want to relate to that, but you take that away from me. I feel like you've stripped something, not only about Muhammad Ali, but about what was important to me. Yeah, I understand that. And I understand the, the value of these kind of myths. But um, I also understand that there's value in appreciating that people are complicated and that they don't have to be perfect. And that the sometimes the stories that are the easiest aren't true. And, you know, there's value in the truth, too. There is value in the truth. But... Going back to Santa Claus, if you will, and it's kind of hard for me to believe that I'm making this <laughs> argument, but what does Santa Claus represent to kids? That there is someone out there paying attention to them who wants to reward them, who cares about them and wants to come down and bring them presents and love them. And I mean, wants them a, to be good. And know, wants them to be good. Because he's keeping see, a list. But also sees the best in them. Right. And I think that it's not quite as simple as saying there's not some red, you know, guy in a red suit flying around with reindeer, but there's something much deeper than that. That's a world I want to live in. That's a world that makes me that I want to relate to. And as everything does, this comes back to our portion this week, right? Santa's in this one? Uh, well, not quite, but Jacob, who I'm quite <laughs> sure had a long beard as well. But I can assure you there were no reindeer in this story. The portion's called Vayachi which means, and he lived. And for the second time in the book of Genesis, you have a story where the portion begins by talking about life, and then one of our main patriarchs and matriarchs dies. So it happened in the portion of Chaye Sarah, Sarah lived, and now in this portion, Vayachi, and he lived, is going to kind of follow with the death of Jacob. But before Jacob dies, he does something that's going to be repeated again and again throughout Jewish history. He's going to gather all of his sons around him, and he's going to bless every one of them. But the blessing is very different than what you or I might think, where it's this kind of warm moment, you know, where the 
violins are in the background and he's going to say something about his sons that's going to be totally uplifting and just make them feel great about themselves. In fact, he can be very, very critical. I'll give you one example. He blesses his son, Reuben, and he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and first fruit of my vigor, exceeding in rank and exceeding in honor. Now listen, unstable as water, you shall excel no longer. For when you mounted your father's bed, you brought disgrace. My couch, he mentioned. <laughs> it's like, thank you very much. I could have done without that blessing. But what we're going to find out is that if you study the history of the tribes of Israel, that quite directly, Jacob is a prophet. He's telling them what's going to happen. The parent looks to their child and basically says to them at the end of his life, I know you, and this is the path that I see you going on. You know what? This is where it's going to take you. And that's a powerful thing. And I think as parents... We do have a sense of where our kids are going and what what their lives are going to be, don't you think? Yeah, of course. And we all feel like um, we have to we never stop parenting, right? You have to give them instructions that will last beyond the grave. And, uh, and that's why our kids all end up in therapy, um, because we're constantly trying to, uh, to to shape their lives and can't let go. That's all true. But I also think that the blessing is that you told your child the truth. You didn't sugarcoat it. You didn't choose not to mention it because I didn't want to ruin the moment. But you love your kids enough to tell them the truth. That can be a blessing too, don't you think? Oh, of course. Yeah. And that's called tough love, or I guess it was what some people would call it tough love. And, and you know, we don't really do our kids any favors by coddling them and telling them they're perfect, although it's, you know, it's tempting and maybe we we think they're perfect. But um, no, I think that there's absolutely a lot of truth to that, that we're better off sometimes being honest. In a sense, when you said tough love, which is a phrase that that I use too, it's actually unfair because maybe it's just love. Right. Love is tough, right? Love should be tough if it's true, if it's real love, where you don't have to live in fear of telling someone the truth or how you actually feel. What's interesting about this is that modern scholars, biblical scholars, look at the story of Jacob and they say, oh, no, 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 he's not a prophet. Basically, this last section of the book of Genesis was written down at a time when the tribes had already developed and that the writer is basically saying, oh, this is what became of Reuben, this is what became of Levi, this is what became of... Ephraim and Manasseh. So the writer is writing with the help of history, and he's putting it in the mouth of Jacob as if it's prophecy. In other words, there's no Santa Claus. Right. In other words, this is a this is a foundational myth. It's a it's created with the purpose of passing along a story, and that it's not journalism. I guess I would put it: Jacob got egged. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. I like being a verb. <laughs> <laughs> that they, you know, that, that that's a myth. That's just not really the way it is. The reality is, is that what's wrong with holding on to the idea that Jacob blessed his children and had some degree of prophecy? Do we gain anything from destroying the myth? Because at the end of the day, as I think you said at the very onset, we like the story. The story matters to us, Right. 
I want to see him in a positive, not only a positive light, but I also want to see him as kind of a extraordinary figure who may have had the gift of prophecy, that times, the walls of time sort of melt, and all of this kind of comes together in this kind of idealized idea. I like that in a way. I want to hold on to that. Am I allowed to look at the world through religious eyes, through the eyes of religious imagination in a scientific age? Yeah, and I would say to you, uh, especially since you're calling into question the value of eyeing, um, I would say to you that, that we need and can have both the myth and the reality, or at least the, the skeptical uh, version of historical events. And you know, I'll give you another example um, from another one of my books: the the myth that Pee Wee Reese walked over to Jackie Robinson in the middle of a game when he's being heckled by this racist crowd and, and put his arm around Jackie Robinson and, and silenced the, the, the crowd of white hecklers and sent the message that Jackie was one of us now and that his color didn't matter, he was a Brooklyn Dodger. Well, that didn't happen either. But there's a real value in that myth because it comes at a time when integration is not even on the map, right? There is no civil rights movement. This is 1947. And for a white Kentuckian to step across the ball field and to put his arm around a black teammate and to say he's one of us now, that had huge value at the time. But there's also value in examining it and asking whether it really happened and asking whether in some ways it, looking at it through our current lens through today, 2021, whether that isn't disempowering to Jackie Robinson. Is it giving the credit to right. the white man when the black man deserved it? So it's that white savior idea. Right. So, we, oh, now that the white, the white guy is going to come over, silence the crowd in this kind of gallant way, kind of save the black man from the horde. You can see the anger in that as well. Right. And, and what I'm saying to you is that these historical events and these stories, even the biblical stories, they don't exist at one particular time in history. They exist on multiple times in history. We're talking about when they happen. We're talking about when they're recorded. And then we're talking about when they're being told and the meetings can and should change as you hop around in time. And can we hold on to both? Right. Can we hold on to both? Can we appreciate things, appreciate the meaning of things for some people in a particular moment? But we can also kind of blend the science. I once knew a woman and she, uh, she was studying Bible in one of the Parsha classes. And she said, oh, this is a one-eyed text. It's like, what? What does, what, what does that mean? She says, well, Rabbi, she said, there are certain texts that I can only read with my religious eye, but my science eye, I have to close to it, hmm. which I thought was an interesting idea that God gave us two eyes, and therefore I'm going to allow for this kind of midrashic or this kind of imaginative world, even though I know my science my science part of my brain or my eye is saying, no, 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 no. I can't even look at this. I have to close it to this idea. But this is how we live. We have to balance the two. And there's room for both. We don't have to embrace one over the other, but we can actually embrace both of them, I think, in a very sophisticated, thoughtful way. I think that's what it means to live as an adult. Yeah, I like that idea a lot, um, and it, it makes more work for us. It means that we have to do a little bit of uh, thinking and a little bit of critical analysis. We get more out of these stories when we do that. The truth is multifaceted. As I like to say, the Hebrew word for truth is emet, and it starts with the aleph, which is the first letter of the alphabet. It ends with the letter taf, which is the last letter of the alphabet, and the mem is the middle 
It's the exact middle of the Hebrew alphabet. So, the word emet is reminding you that the truth is varied. There's an entire spectrum of ideas that make for the truth. I think that's a wonderful place to stop. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi. <laughs>